welcome to the In Systems We Trust podcast with Mark E. Murray. You're listening to season two. In Systems We Trust dives into all things systems and processes and interviews the professionals who are using them to change the landscape of their organizations every day. This podcast is fueled by Ditto, a team that is on a mission to eliminate team burnout by implementing systems and processes that streamline your business's growth. Are you ready for more clarity? Here we go. Thanks for tuning into another episode of In Systems We Trust. My name is Marquis and I am your host. And today we're talking with Herb Marshall. Herb is a retired nuclear Navy officer and former lead field assistant for the Department of Energy Naval Reactors. He and his team oversaw hundreds of millions of dollars of major capital projects, including construction, fabrication, reactor servicing, logistics, overhaul, operations maintenance, and vessel decommissioning and dismantling. During his tenure, he developed a passion for understanding what cultural, organizational, and procedural practices led to the most effective oversight. The lessons learned from those experiences were the genesis for the Project Oversight Guide, his book that is now available at online bookstores. Welcome to the show, Herb. Hey, thank you. Um, Thanks for having me. Yeah, very welcome. It's good to connect. When I saw your email, I was really excited to to talk more about you. One, you're an author, and two, you're a systems person, and that's what this show is all about. So I'm excited to dive in and find out some more. And so typically, the first question is always, who are you? What is your background? How did you get to where you're at right now? I know I just read your bio, but what was you know the the thing that really started off your career and kickstarted you into this into this space you're in now? Um, yeah, so, you know, you covered my bio pretty well, but, um, you know, I was a Navy nuke and in the process, uh, there's an organization called Naval Reactors. A lot of people don't know that nuclear vessels in the U.S. Navy aren't really owned by the, the fleet. They're actually owned by the Department of Energy and regulated and, and um, you know, fabricated and the rest um, by Naval Reactors. So uh, in my tenure, they selected me to go work for them um, when I was a naval officer, and I went there for 11 years and oversaw that laundry list of uh, projects you were talking about. And then after I retired, um, I took some time off and backpacked through Europe and stuff. But I came back and got into nuclear power again, and a friend of mine said, hey, you know, there's this commercial nuclear power plant that's struggling with uh, decommissioning and dismantling their their um, uh, site, and they could use someone who knows how to do owner oversight because they have mm-hmm. a general contractor, but they're struggling overseeing the work and looking out for you know advocating for the owner's interests. So I went okay. and did that for 18 months, built the program from scratch, which became the genesis for the project oversight guide because I rolled up all of the processes and project oversight manual and. Um, uh, probably 20 different uh, processes and like up into the project oversight guide, which is, as you said, now available. Okay. And I'd love to dive more into actual the work that you were doing when you were brought into that project. What does that look like? What is a day to day? How do you even begin to you know plan for uh, a decommissioning of a nuclear plant or a dismantlement? What does that really look like? And where do you start from a planning perspective? Well, from a, a planning perspective, you know, the old adage is even even more true when you're talking about uh, highly complex 
uh, capital projects for you know over a billion dollars. Mm. So um, you know they, there's that old saying: those who fail to plan are planning to fail. Yeah. So it really starts at the contract and uh, and you and the development of milestones for the payment plan. And that was the first place that I tackled when I when I got there is to look at the the milestones for the project and whether or not they aligned with the 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 uh, payment plan. So, mm -hmm. I mean, the last thing you want, if you think about putting an extension on your house, you don't want to pay them for doing the roof when they just finished the foundation, right? Yeah. Um, and you don't want to get cross-wired where you've paid for 90% of the project, but only 10% of the work is done. And, yeah. and so the first thing is making sure the project requirements are right, the work breakdown structure is right, and that the milestone payment plans are right. Okay. Well, what We're project man Fair enough. What, what project uh, management methodology do you do you find that you follow, you know, more closely? Well, I mean, if you're talking about capital products, you're talking about a wall of, a waterfall um, yeah. project management, you know, there's, it's not agile because you're not doing it in an iterative fashion, mm -hmm. but um, it's a little bit different with project oversight, which is part of the reason why I wrote the book, because if you read the, the project management body of knowledge, it's written from the contractor's perspective, right? Mm -hmm. the, what the project team does. And the owner slash client is merely uh, one of the multiple stakeholders that you need to manage and, and monitor and try to keep happy. Right. But what about the owner themselves, right? They, you, uh, for example, Westinghouse did a nuclear power plant construction a few years ago in Georgia that went off the rails and uh, by the company that was doing it was Shaw Group. They made plenty of money and then sold themselves for a premium price where Westinghouse went bankrupt. So you have to say, well, you know, owners got a responsibility to oversee their capital projects. And how do you do that? Mm -hmm. That's not in the project management oversight, uh, not in the uh, PMBOK, but it is in the project management oversight guide. Right. OK. Um, how are you? Planning, like, a, I want to dive into to the book a little bit more and talk about some of the things that you're covering here. But with, you know, the PMBOK, you know, being updated and, you know, approaches changing and, you know, um, those types of things being updated, how, how are you, you know, communicating some of those changes and how are you adapting some of those changes into the work that you're doing now? Well, the, the, um, the work I'm doing now is tailoring um, project management as a consultant. So okay. what, you, what you have to do, obviously, is look at what the existing processes are and then determine whether the changes in the PMBOK are going to add value for um, when you try to put legacy processes to rest. And, yeah. and, and it's all over the map, right? Depending on the project, sometimes uh, changes don't add value. And mm. then Regardless of what the pin box says, you shouldn't do them. Yeah. Um, but sometimes they do add value, and then you um, uh, need to set your set the team up for success by making those adjustments to the process, and then following that up with with training. Okay. Uh, it's interesting what you said there. Can you recall a, a moment in time where you were on a project and you implemented a change that did not bring additional value? And you only discovered that maybe in the retrospective. What did that look like, and what lessons learned came out of that uh, that opportunity? Oh 
boy, that's a on the spot kind of question. Sorry. So many projects to, <laughs> to choose from. So the question is, is there an example of when um, I, I thought I had a good idea and it turned out not to be so good? That's it. Uh, hmm. Let me think about that. Let me come back to that. That's going to sure. I'm going to have to give that some thought. OK, no problem at all. All right. Um, I, I'd love to know more about, you know, uh, a, a day in the life. So tell me about your work now, you know, what your company does. I know you have, you know, a, a co-founder and I know you're doing some consultancy work. So what does your work look like today? What kind of clients are you working with and what does your your methodology or your approach look like when you're engaging with these different teams and organizations? Well, it's um, from as a consultant, it's a, a, a whole different new kind of world for for me and i'm learning as i go because mm -hmm. you know there is a degree of the customer's always right um and uh and so i need to find ways that that individually i can find values i can add value so the the the, the primary mission is to take a like a mining facility, um, there's a mining facility in Canada. I won't mention a name; they didn't give me permission to do that. That's okay. going to that's uh, um, the mine is defunct, and so they want to take the have a hundred million dollar project to kind of um, restore it to a resident farmer condition, uh, mm -hmm. which is basically take out the mine and restore the land to to in theory that a farmer could farm it. Um, and the the process begins with trying to um, uh, working with them to find out what they're doing now, and uh, and then mm -hmm. applying the, the the many processes that are in the project oversight guide to tailor it to their specific project and kind of weave it together with uh, with training um, and support on site support uh, and um, performance improvement and organizational design. The organization okay. design piece is probably the most important piece because it's it's the organization of an oversight organization isn't really uh, a common knowledge defined thing. If you were to go do a book search, you're not going to find something out there that says, how do I put together an oversight organization? Right. Um, so that's a, a starting point. So it's when you're talking about a consulting business, the, the, the whole point is to find where their weaknesses are and to help them shore them up. Okay. Just quickly, do you solely work with with, um, with capital projects? Yes. Yes, you do. Okay. What does the, let's talk process here. So I want to talk about, you know, when you are consulting, you know, do you have um, a framework you follow or what does the framework look like? There's obviously your your discovery phase, you're doing your research and your planning, and then there's the implementation execution phase. What what does that look like and how long are these projects typically taking you on average um, from from your from your perspective? Yeah, so the the, the, the first step of the process uh, of the process, consistent with what we were just talking about, mm -hmm. is I have a template of uh, of all the things that make up a um, a tool set of best practices for project oversight. Okay. And and in one column, it lists you know gives the owner an opportunity to go. Do I have this? Do I not have this? And then it gives options for how um, we can help them. Uh, and so the first thing to do is for them to fill that out, 
And from that, we can get a, a roadmap for where their weaknesses are and what kind of support they think they need. And, and then from that, we use that as the basis for um, making a proposal um, for our services. And okay. then, you know, then you get into negotiations. Is, is there any resistance from the internal team? Are there any like internal stakeholders that, you know, are opposed to your opinions and, you know, feel that they have a better way of doing it? And how do you bring the team together if, if that is oh. the case? Yeah, so that is a very good question. Okay. Um, one of the things I learned when I was doing that oversight, putting that together, that oversight organization for that uh, nuclear power plant was the cultural piece. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can write all the processes you want. You can give all the training you want. And unless there's Unless you can in, in institute the cultural, the cult embed the cultural aspects that are necessary for the organization to shift mm-hmm. from uh, being a project management o- organization to a project oversight organization, mm-hmm. uh, you're you're kind of doomed for failure. Um, and so, without the leadership of the organization buying into the concept that uh, oversight, good oversight pays for itself, and bad oversight. Um, can cost you money and lead to litigation. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's a uh, th- that's the constant battle. And what generally happens is is that you know people come out of project management, right? So uh, owners will go, well, shoot, you know, I've got all these project managers who've been here working for me at this site, and now I need to do something that they are not technically competent. They're not people who you know dismantle a mine. They're people who right. mine. Right. And so but they're they're smart people. So let's just have them oversee. You put their project management skills in place to oversee this contractor who's going to be doing the um, the dismantling. Mm-hmm. The, the, the problem with that is a project management mindset. Um, you can very easily get crosswired with the contractor because that contractor has his own project uh, project governance organization. And the last thing they want is for uh, the client to be coming in and um, usurping and their governance by giving their folks direction, right? Right. So if you can imagine you're putting an extension on your house and you're a contractor and you say, okay, put this extension on for $20,000. Mm-hmm. And the contractors go, okay, he brings his team in. And then you have your owners who are going to sit back and drink pina coladas until the the extension is done. Mm-hmm. Then when it's not done right, they go, oh my God, what did I pay for? Right. Uh, but then you have the other end of the equation and the, the owner who thinks he's a, a project manager who's in the knickers of the contractor telling his you know framers to do this, that, and the other and driving the contractor crazy. Right. right? So there's a, there's a balance there uh, and that balance is, is um, the linchpin of that balance is having the right oversight culture. Okay. Is that uh, sparking any um, previous experiences where things went wrong or, or are you still thinking uh, through it? Well, yeah, I mean, that is, uh, um, I, I, t- yes, exactly. Because okay. um, it's not a single example, but mm-hmm. certainly I've got, before I learned that lesson, that was probably the biggest um, uh, obstacle to success was not spending enough time on the cultural piece okay. um, and getting the cultural buy-in. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and sometimes that requires um, sometimes that requires burning the platform. As a, are you familiar with that term? I am. Yeah. Uh, and and sometimes you know that requires finding new people who are amenable to change. Right. How, how do you communicate that importance of culture? Right. Because we come into spaces where with our clients, we have our approach, we have our methodology, we have our process. It's battle tested. You know, we've gone through it several times. We've had success with it. And then you have someone who doesn't see it the way that you see it. So you're coming in and saying, hey, I've been brought into this project. I've been hired in for my expertise. Right. I'm going mm -hmm. to take charge. This is the hierarchy. This is the project team. You know, how do you communicate those things when there is a bit of pushback or there are those people that are more, you know, lackadaisical and, you know, on the outside, but still want to see progress happen? Yeah, like uh, I'm from the government and we're here to help. Um, <laughs> you, it, you don't make much headway with uh, in words. Um, mm -hmm. So. It, one, you have to be approachable and you have to listen and you ha have to have empathy for what it is they're going through. You know, upheaval mm -hmm. and change is stressful, right? And so the the best way to approach is, is, is um, in small bites because if you could show them how you added value and it was not painful um, uh, incrementally, uh, they will learn... And they are, are they are part of the and it's part built into their incentives and reward, where when you have that incremental change that adds value, that they reap some of the benefits of that value, right? Yeah. Um, by their participation. So if you if you uh, marry uh, your incentives and rewards with the change, and you can show that okay, you know you don't want to change this whole kit and caboodle, but let's yeah. just start here. And at the end of that, you, if you're not happy, then maybe we don't go forward. But so the culture change happens um, uh, a little bit at a time through success. Okay. Um, interesting that it happens through success and then we, we allow for more change. You said that change is stressful and I absolutely agree. I, I'm of the mindset that we should always be changing. We should always be iterating and updating. And obviously with a project where there are timelines, we can't always do that. Um, so I, I'm curious what your system for change management looks like. You mentioned it comes through success. What systems do you have in place, whether it be documents or meetings to ensure that change is managed um, effectively as, as well as mm -hmm. efficiently? Yeah, right. So um, you're... Your, the, the way that I approach it with clients, and this is in the, you know, it's built into the PMBOK. There's lessons mm -hmm. learned is important. Uh, I prefer not to say continuous improvement. Okay. I prefer to take it up a notch to relentless improvement. Yeah. Uh, and and so the the process is to in, embed improvement at every level. So you have your built-in process of improvement. So you you require debriefs of uh, critical events, um, uh, debriefs of milestones, debriefs of evolutions. You mm. uh, are constantly surveying employees for ways in which they can improve. So you're looking for their, their feedback. Uh, and then you also, you know, you have brainstorming, um, you 
in, I, I'm a big component of a, a center of excellence so okay. that all of the all of these lessons learned and potentials for improvement um, roll into one place and be shared across all your platforms. Um, and then uh, and then you you know you you get what you, you get what you incentivize, right? So then you mm. have to incentivize people in which you know a good idea, there's some benefit to them, right? The, yeah. the, I, mean, I, I spend a lot of time in training and the first there's the, people talk about learning objectives all the time. Yeah. Um, but uh, there's a, this thing called an effective objective. And, and that's the should be the starting objective of why should you care? <laughs> and so once you get if, if you marry any process with the effective objective, why they should care and their care may be, you know, if, if I can institute this improvement that I'm thinking of in my head, I'm going to reap some benefit for that. Um, and so that's that's another way. And then that's the process side of the house, basically program for learning um, uh, lessons learned and continuous slash relentless improvement. Uh, but the other piece of the equation is the cultural piece. So trying and you can do that. And, and my book talks about this. You do that through management touch points, because if a manager goes in the field with his uh, his folks, whatever that field is, you know, it could be a factory, it could be a site or whatever, and he is exemplifying, um, asking for ways that how can we improve this? How can we improve this? And and the supervisor that he's doing his paired observation with is witnessing that, that touch point then becomes um, part of what the supervisor learns is the culture and belief system of the company. Hey everyone, it's me, Marquis. I just wanted to take a minute to tell you a bit more about Ditto. If you've been listening to In Systems We Trust for a while, you've heard firsthand accounts of how systems and workflows change the landscape of work for businesses and leaders across the globe. Ever felt like there just aren't enough hours in the day? Is your startup starting to grow and scale and you're wondering how your systems will scale with it? Maybe you're part of a widespread multi-level corporation that needs to update and overhaul its standard operating procedures. Well, if you can relate, Ditto can help. Eliminate team burnout, keep your best talent, and have a clear system in place to help you and your business achieve your goals. Visit thinkditto.com to learn more. You, you haven't uh, trademarked uh, Relentless Improvement, have you? <laughs> uh, my, my, my son has it on a coffee cup. That's how, that's how much I talk about it. Okay. I love it. I mean, in a, I, I used to think of it from a perspective of where it's it's measurable constant improvement right so it's measurable in the sense that we have goals right we're reaching those goals it's not just change for the sake of change so that's interesting well you know the the other program we didn't talk about that is married with improvement is your performance measures and your performance measurement right um, a lot of people conflate those two but they're actually two entirely different things and uh and so for if you want to improve, you got to give folks and supervisors enough time to analyze and do trend analysis on their performance measurement side, you know, like uh, mm -hmm. uh, earn value management stuff, you know, why, is, why am I a little bit over budget or whatever. Um, and yet also on the key performance side, key performance indicator side uh, is so that they can, you know, use the data to implement change. Mm. Um, and so that's the 
that's the other marrying. And, and, and it's important that a lot of organizations, if you try to map and you're talking about my process, my process is always to start with the goals and objectives of the company and then map those success factors to the measurement and the performance indicators. Uh, and a lot of times, um, somewhere in that mix, they, they don't always align. And then you end up incentivizing the wrong kinds of things. Yeah, that's interesting. How, how often, and I'm curious as as to you know who, in your opinion, you think should be involved in this process, looking at the metrics, making sure we're driving KPIs. Obviously, with different teams, it would look a little bit different. But let's start with how often we should be reviewing these metrics and using that data to you know help us to measure and 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 change accordingly. Um, so yeah, that first question is how often would we be re- reviewing those metrics? Uh, the the it, it depends on the phase of the project, okay. right? So in the beginning of the project, uh, I think that the, the metrics should be looked at as uh, frequently, a lot more frequently, because you want to, when your project first starts, you know, post-planning, getting an execution, you, want, you don't want a, a problem to become an outlier for an extended period of time because you haven't looked at it yet. So you want to look at, everything up front and so from terms of project oversight you probably that the most intense time is at the project start because then you can early identify any weaknesses and don't allow them to fester over time so boom you're hitting it hard in the beginning and from that you'll get a baseline and that baseline will let you know you know these 20 things um seem to be stable and and well under control and so I'm going to look at those periodically, quarterly, monthly, semi-annually, um, and uh, depending on the length of the project. And if I notice that they're starting to slip, then I'll back down from semi-annual quarter to monthly uh, while I'm putting, putting my corrective actions in place. Okay. But uh, the ones that, that come out of that first iteration of just kind of globbing on and looking at everything that show weaknesses, then you need to look at those frequently. Okay. But you got to figure out, you know, through a risk assessment, a way, a graded approach, because uh, yeah. you can't look at everything every day. So you got to take a sort of graded approach. And so you want to figure out what, what's the ones I need to focus on, which are the ones that are on autopilot. Okay. Let's back up a little bit. Something you said was really interesting. And it was, <clears throat> you know, explaining that the goals and objectives of the company is where you typically start. What happens when the goals and objectives of the company are not well-defined um, are you then saying, hey, we're not ready to move forward? Or do you take them through, um, you know, a soul searching or, you know, take them through a boot camp on what it looks like? Are you bringing consultants for that? How do you approach those kinds of situations? Well, uh, you know, that's it's, it's a good question because it's highly it, the goals of a company tend to be somewhat personal. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean trying to shift the company's goals, you're really talking at the steering committee level. So there's some buy-in and ownership. Um, and I don't think that as a consultant on project oversight that I should shape a company's goals. Um, right. Uh, that, that's for them to do. If the, if the goals seem out of the line for to me, um, then maybe we were not a good fit. I mean, I could mm-hmm. always make a suggestion, but the reality of it is there's, um, 
there's this this thing called preference falsification. Okay. Um, in, in in consulting, sometimes it's advisable to um, you know take on the position of agreeing with what your client's uh, mission and and vision is. Okay. And, and because if you can't start from a, from the place of agreeing with their vision, whether you know internally you're not so sure about it, mm. then um, it's hard to. Uh, have the kind of empowered productivity to uh, love what you're doing and drive for adding value. In, in, the, in the Navy, they used to talk about uh, the kind of uh, a lesson learned about management is that um, whatever the commanding officer says, behind closed doors, you may go, I don't agree with that, Captain. You know? mm-hmm. And when he says, Matt, do it anyway, then you have to go out and be a believer. And, and you go to the troops and you do 150% to try to put the captain's vision into place because that's the only way to really show the, the, the captain that the vision doesn't work, right? Because if you half-pass it, then the next thing you know, he's going to be like, how do you know it didn't work? You really didn't put your, you know, your back into it. Mm-hmm. So my, my idea is not to try to shape a the, the vision of a company, which boils down to their goals, and um, is to embrace them as best I can so that I can try to bring the vision to life. And if it doesn't work, then they, they'll know it. They'll learn mm-hmm. less. Okay. Yeah, I think that's a really good perspective. It's definitely not our job to help them shape that, but I like where you went with the vision and the mission. And that's something that's very important to us at Ditto. Our vision is to end team burnouts. Right. The mission is to help teams and empower them to understand, you know, where and how the work is happening without the stress of not knowing where the work is happening. And so there's this this concept of like, you know, work about work. I don't know if you've heard that before. You know, it's good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So like I'm sure you know what that means, what that looks like. There are teams that are getting stuck in the weeds, they're getting stuck in the minutia of the day-to-day, and they're not actually accomplishing the work that their clients are hiring them to accomplish. So what does that look like in your world? And what do you do to combat this work about work? Well, I mean, the uh, there's, a, there's a great example of that uh, from years ago. Uh, uh, there was this uh, radio manufacturer, so you know who makes radios anymore, um, right. But what was happening is that the uh, assembly line was bogged down with shortages of materials. Mm-hmm. And, and so the company had invented all of these workarounds and had like different shelves for radios that were manufactured and at certain states waiting for certain parts. And when you really looked at the their processes, about... Uh, of half of their process was managing um, supply chain shortages of materials and all the work that goes in, pulling it off the assembly line, cataloging it, putting it somewhere, tracking when the part comes in, pulling it back. And, and so a guy came in and he's like, no, we got to, we got to, we're doing a lot of work here, but the work is not productive. Right? Yeah. It's, all, yeah. it's mostly work around than right. anything. And he shut the factory down for uh, four straight months and worked on the supply chain to get a, 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 his inventory so all the materials they needed were in, in the stores. 
uh, on the shelf. And he used that time to train his folks. And to the cultural piece, the, uh, the owner gave him the authorization to do that, but the board of directors were very upset that you know, they weren't putting out any radios for four months. Mm. But once he started back up and he eliminated every single process um, that was associated with the workaround if there's not such and such a supply, that their productivity went up twofold. Okay. And it took less than a year to recoup the four months of losses, and then they were working at 2x going, going forward. And so the, the idea is to apply a hierarchy of controls when you're trying to solve problems like that, um, getting to the other half of your question. Because you know the lower rungs of the hierarchy of control would be to encourage people to work harder or to implement some training to, so people learn how to work, work around it. But the higher tiers is to figure out how to fix the process itself to eliminate the bottleneck altogether so yeah. that people aren't working um, to work. They're actually working to produce. That's a great example. I love that you shared that. And um, I'm a huge fan of that. I mean, sometimes in, in my business, you know, I've been told in the past from some of my team members that I move too quickly, that I want to just like change things. And and if I could, I would do exactly what the the person in your example, you know, did is just, you know, stop everything. Let's just turn it all off. Let's look at it and let's address it. But that's not, that's not, you know, realistic for, for any company, you know, really in, in, in this day and age. Oh. Yeah, well, I, 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 well, you know, when you look at the Lean Six Sigma, um, yeah. uh, uh, if a part of that is to not to, to stop, right, and fix it on the spot, mm -hmm. on the line, right? Um, they, they, so it's and, and if you do that often enough, um, and as my example would show you, on a smaller scale, when you do that often enough it's more productive to, to stop than to not stop. Uh, and, okay. and, uh, and so, but it's getting people to understand that the workaround isn't helping you. Um, okay. That if you do the math and you look at, here's the outcome if I stop for a day and, and, and eliminate this problem going forward, mm -hmm. here's the outcome if I do a workaround for the next six months. Okay. Do you have your black belt, by the way? Uh, I'm a green belt. Uh, lean principles okay. from uh, Bill Nova. Okay. All right. Yeah, Bill Nova. I, I started my studying, but I halted it. Um, I definitely, definitely got to get back. It's interesting that you brought that up. Um, well, I, I uh, in my oversight role at Naval Reactors, um, it predated the Pimbach. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and so when I was when I was leaving there, they were introducing. Um, uh, the PMBOK and Lean Six Sigma, but I have been working projects uh, in, on, on a quality control side using Six Sigma and, and Lean principles for years before it became a thing. Okay, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and so uh, I just decided to go get my green belt just to have the alphabet soup. Uh, <laughs> but it's, it's just not, cause. Well, my point is it's not all that new. Okay, You're yeah. talking about the, to, to, to the Toyota production model goes all the way back to the 80s. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's very true. Um, 
Okay, I'd love to dive in more. We're, we're almost at the end here, but I, I've got some more questions. And there's obviously so much more that we can talk about here. Because of your, your, your vast experience, you know, what are some of the biggest issues you see when you come into a project? And if you had all of your previous or current prospective clients, what's something that you would say to them, you know, to get them to understand the need for project oversight? Uh, the the first thing I would tell them is you gotta approach it as if it's its own separate discipline. Mm-hmm. That managing a project team is not the same as overseeing someone else's project team. Going back to the house example that we had talked about earlier, that you're not the project manager. You shouldn't be over there trying to direct that uh, um, his workers on what to do. You're mm-hmm. so it's it's one. That's that's the that's the first thing. The, the second thing that if I was going to try to convey, and it's ex, and it's especially important because we just passed an infrastructure bill. We're going to spend like two trillion dollars on infrastructure, wow. right? And that is, don't think of project oversight as um, G and A. Don't think of it as as overhead, right? Yeah. It could be a value center because you take a Pricewaterhouse Coopers did a study uh, of mega projects. And the, they found that most mega projects go at least 50% over budget. So that means you got a $100 million project, you're going to spend $150 billion. Uh, 150 million. Right. If you got a $1 billion project, you're going to spend $1.5 billion. So there is a lot of room to shave points off of that if you invest in um, a solid oversight program that, you know, has that invokes some best practices. So if you think, uh, I show some examples in the book of just doing the math of, of hiring someone to do oversight of, <clears throat> of uh, waste disposal on a construction site and how much of that waste disposal cost you mm-hmm. and how much having an expert looking at it as it goes from an owner's perspective, you can retrieve some of that risk reduction and quality of deliverable uh, and it, the numbers show uh, you save money. Right. So the, the one of the most important things I would say is to stop looking at oversight as a as a collateral duty that is overhead and looking at it as something that adds value to the cust- uh, to the owner. Perfect, love it. Um, one last question for you, just because I love tech. We're talking about systems today. What, what are some of the actual tools that you use in your in your business to stay organized, aligned with the other team members to manage your projects? What do some of those um, more software tools or systems look like? So for me, uh, in from a consulting perspective, I, I use uh, Aptivo. Okay. Uh, to manage my campaigns and emails and leads and opportunities and those kinds of things. From a project oversight perspective, uh, it's, a, it's a very good question. I think it's an opportunity for a tech company because mm. most often you, ha- you have to use a GRC system, uh, governance, risk, and compliance system. Mm-hmm. And my preference is uh, uh, OnSpring. And because it's very flexible and I, I can build, I can uh, kind of mold it into an oversight uh, model. But if you think about the GRC is, you know, it's usually the, the, the contractor has that 
and there's very distinct processes associated with oversight that you have to marry in, right? So mm. I, could, I could list off a whole bunch of them, right? <laughs> um, and so you need a system that's flexible enough to, to, that you can build into those processes and be able to track your success. And for that, I like uh, OnSpring. Okay. OnSpring. I'm going to look into that. I've never heard of it. Uh, let's take a look there. There we go. Incredible. All right. So, uh, Herb, thanks so much for coming on the show today. It was incredible to, to chat with you, learn more about what you do. I always give our guests an opportunity to you know, share where people can find them. If there's one last message you want to share and to the listeners, um, head over to oversightadvantage.com. You can uh, read all about Herb. You can take a look at the Project Oversight guide. Uh, you can buy it now. There's also an option to download and read the introduction to get a, a, a solid understanding. And maybe I'm talking for you here, Herb, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> maybe I just answered that question. Where can people connect with you outside uh, of the, the website? Well, I, I like LinkedIn. Uh, okay. So you can find me on LinkedIn under HM Junior, spelled Junior out. I also have an oversight group that I'm, I'm formed on uh, LinkedIn, so you could join the oversight group, okay. and um, and then as you said, the the, the website oversightadvantage.com, and uh, uh, and if, a good starting point would be to to uh, read the first 25 pages of the book and see if it's going to help you, especially if you're, I mean, every project manager at some point, if the as the longer you're in the business, it's only a matter of time before you're going to have to oversee something instead right. of running something be it subcontractors or whatever. Uh, and it's a good thing to have in your tool set of knowing how to oversee it versus the differences between that and knowing how to run one. So, uh, but hey, I really appreciate you having me on, Mark, because it, it's, it's uh, uh, um, I could talk about project oversight all day long and, and you've been yeah. a very gracious host. Oh, well, thank you. Thanks for your time and thanks for sharing the insights. And uh, uh, make sure you go and follow Herb on those channels. Again, all of the notes will be in the show notes below with a link to the book as well. Thanks so much, Herb. We'll talk to you soon. Yeah, take care. Thanks for listening to the In Systems We Trust podcast with Marquis Murray. If you liked what you heard today, hit subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Don't forget to rate the episode and share it with a friend. Head over to thinkditto.com to learn more about how the team at Ditto can help your business scale by implementing the systems and processes needed to get you there.